we know if you pay attention to uh, conversations kind of generally, I think, in the media and other places, you probably heard this discussion about the balance between positive and negative statements, right? Maybe you've heard a psychologist somewhere or a counselor suggest that for every negative thing that you say, particularly in a family relationship, you should balance it with five positive things. Now, this is a... Um, this is really hard because negative does not just mean like yelling. It doesn't just mean fights. It doesn't mean that like negative could mean little things like, oh, this chicken's a little dry today. Or did you pick up the things I asked you from the dry cleaners? Oh, no, you didn't. You know, like just these little tinier things that the way human beings work is that we need five things repeated for every one bad thing. Uh, it, we see uh, there was recently Harvard Business Review did a search of companies and they looked at companies and they ranked them as highly successful, moderately successful, or relatively unsuccessful. And they did that by sales, corporate culture, a variety of issues. And they looked at this very thing. They read through all their emails, they sat through their meetings, and they tried to figure out what the balance was. And generally they found that uh, very similar numbers, the companies that perform very well have an environment where there are 5.6 compliments for every criticism. And so, oh wow, this report, even if you had to say, uh, the report isn't quite the way I wanted it, now there are 5.6 positive things that you're going to say in that environment. Uh, companies that do meet moderately well, we're down near 1.9. And then companies that were failing, were failing in part because they gave three criticisms for every positive. And it really, uh, it makes us think a little bit about what we dwell on and whether we are positive or negative people in the way we go about life. How do we balance the, uh, the critical thoughts that we have in our head and the more encouraging thoughts that we have in our head? I have a passage today that is, uh, we're coming, going through the book of Matthew. We're to Matthew 12. And it's a passage that we, I think, get bogged down in a lot of minutia and a lot of theological questions and a lot of issues about heaven and hell and salvation and all these kinds of things. And we're going to touch on some of that. But I think in the text, there's a much broader principle of what do you fill your life with? And is the positive or negative things that you fill your life with seeping out in the way that you deal with the world around you? And I think that maybe if we're a little more practical with the text, it would help us instead of getting bogged down in the more technical and complex parts of it. Um, I am going to use a relatively old style today that I don't usually use in preaching. Usually we kind of read a bigger section and then we walk through it. Um, back in the day, meaning like 15, 16, 1700 years ago, the way you would preach is you'd read a verse and then you would talk about that verse. And then you'd read another verse and you'd talk about it and then read another verse and talk about it. And that's going to be kind of our structure today. It's not the way I usually go, but there was all kinds of nice little juicy nuggets in each verse that I kind of wanted to hit at. And so uh, that, that'll be a little stylistically different, but I think uh, it'll help us to get ready uh, to understand this passage. So it's Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start today in verse 21. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? 
But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So Jesus in this text is uh, casting out some demons, and he's received very poorly. Uh, the way I thought about it is he is receiving this the way that I as a teenager received vacations. Uh, maybe you've had this experience with a teenager uh, where they get to this point where they don't want to be impressed by anything, right? So mom and dad work really hard to create a great, fun vacation, see the country, see incredible things, and they're like, okay, whatever, I don't care, mom and dad. Uh, this is my experience, the one that I was somewhat famous for that I'm a little embarrassed of now. Caleb, aren't you glad we took you to see the Grand Canyon? Well, it's just a really big ditch, right? That's what I said, is it was a really big ditch. There was no splendor, there was no majesty. It was like, ugh. My mom took us out by train. She thought that would be you know, romantic old style travel. I thought it was four days in a metal box. I was not really excited about it. And it's just the way I was for a little while where I just hated, they would try these great things for me. They would try to help me travel and see the world. And my response would be to just poo poo everything that they did as insignificant and unimportant and nothing was cool to me. And the Pharisees kind of have that stinky attitude. The Pharisees are saying, Okay, you healed a guy, but you couldn't have done it the right way. Uh, if you think about it, it's kind of shocking to us. I mean, we talked a little bit about demon possession. Uh, when we do our Q&A, we have a Q&A at the end of our sermons. If you want to talk about demon possession more, we can. I'm not going to give the usual spiel because you're probably bored of it by this point. But it's something that's weird for us. But we have a man that we're told here is blind or um, is deaf and mute. Uh, blind and mute. I'm sorry. Usually deaf and mute go together. But this one was blind and mute. And all of a sudden, he could see and speak again. And instead of going, wow, look at what has happened amongst us, they immediately go, hmm, how did he do it? And they become hypercritical, right? They look at things with the purpose of being uh, negative, with the purpose of picking it apart, of finding the mistakes. As I was working on this, the images this morning, does this one resonate? I mean, I think you got it, right, Justin? Does anybody else who knows who these people are? They were movie critics, right? Yeah, they're movie critics. This is Roger and Ebert, the famous movie yeah, critics. Yeah. So I knew that I was going to hit about half my audience there. But yes, these, uh, these are old famous movie critics that would... Uh, and you know, the job of the critic is to rip things down and to talk about what's wrong with them. Um, inherently, critics don't even like doing a review that doesn't have some degree of criticism. And this is the way they respond to a man being miraculously healed. Is, well, psh, the only way he must have done that is if he had Satan as his power. If Beelzebul, if the demons themselves were in cahoots with Jesus to kind of throw off this false miracle. And Jesus' response to them, I think, is very interesting. Uh, verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Uh, this is uh, just a little note here. I did, a research, I did some research this week. Every time the scripture says Jesus knew their hearts, or Jesus knew what they were thinking, or Jesus knew their minds, interestingly enough, it is always bad in the New Testament if Jesus knows your mind. 
Never does the New Testament go. And Jesus knew their hearts and they were full of butterflies and rainbows and beauty, right? It says something about human nature that every time Jesus has insight into someone's heart, it is gross and disgusting and full of evil, sinful, selfish thoughts. Uh, Verse 26. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Jesus makes this very simple point here that Satan is not fighting against Satan. It makes no sense that Satan would have stronghold, would have a control of someone's life, and then remove his control from someone's life. He would not be using me to expel demons. Satan's in the the business of putting demons in. Uh, It's also a good reminder to always check famous quotes, right? Abraham Lincoln uses this wording very well in his famous address about a house divided against itself will fall. But just remember, he stole it from Jesus, right? Half the time when you hear a famous quote, it's somebody else's quote that was uh, repeated by someone else. So Jesus says it just doesn't make sense that Satan uh, would be doing these things. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then you will be your judges. Jesus says there's, a, there's an interesting double standard here. You guys cast out demons and everybody jumps around and says, praise God, how great it is. I do the exact same thing and everybody is like, well, clearly he's doing the work of Satan. Because what criteria are we judging that on? How is it that the way that I do it is bad, but the way you do it is okay? And you see here in the Pharisees' hearts what's going on. There's a, there's a competition. There's a rivalry. Somebody did something amazing, and that somebody isn't me, so they must be doing it wrong. Uh, this is tempting for us as Christians, particularly in a Christian world where there's 10,000 denominations or whatever we've, we've got now, Right? To go, wow, that church is doing really well. They must be doing something evil. They must be lacing their communion with drugs or something, right? There's no way that that church, who's not my church, is doing a really good job. And that envy and that selfishness comes up. And Jesus would go, well, wait a minute. If your baptisms and your increased attendance and you know, your community service, if it's good... Why is it your stuff's good, but then when the guys down the street do it, they do it bad? And I think he would get to our, our critical hearts, that we are so quick to find fault in the way other people do things. And Jesus says, if your if uh, circumcisions, if your uh, demon depossessions, uh, I cannot think of that word. If your exorcisms don't count, or do count, why do mine count? Right? That was a weird sentence. If your exorcisms count, why don't mine? And he says it's because you're being unnecessarily critical in your hearts. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In a way, Jesus is saying, do not lift a, uh, do not look a miracle horse in the mouth, right? Uh, if you have something come along that is this wonderful, if there is someone in your community who's been hurting and they come into contact with a person of God who shows the power of God to save them from a malady like this, why is your first response to be critical? Your first response should be gratitude. Thank God that this happened. 
Recently, we've been walking through Philippians, and Paul says something very interesting in Philippians 1 that I think is related. He says, I know there's a lot of people out there who are preaching the gospel merely because that agitates the Romans, and when the Romans are agitated, I get treated poorly. But so what? I don't care. He's like, as long as the gospel is preached, I don't care that there's a bunch of jerks with bad motives that are doing it. As long as people are coming to know Jesus, that's okay with me. There's this idea of when you see someone receive good things in their life, be positive about it. Be excited about it. That's where you go, hey, the kingdom of God has come. The reign of God is here. If you have a friend that starts going to some church that helps them get over their drug addiction, thank God. Don't tell them, I think that you might, uh, your worship style stinks. Or I think that your doctrine of the Holy Spirit is a little wonky. Let's start with, thank God that you're not on drugs anymore. Right? Like there's just this idea of what what sequence are we going to put things in? What are we going to talk about? And there's this importance of recognizing that when God does powerful work, it deserves praise and honor and thankfulness from us instead of critique. Next verse. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions without first tying up the strong man? Then his house can be plundered. Uh, Jesus is basically just talking here about who's the more powerful force in the room, right? He's like, uh, I, I cannot use demons to drive out demons because that is bringing low-grade power to a problem. If I am casting out demons, it is because I have the power of something bigger and stronger and more incredible than a measly little demon. I, I'm, I'm using the power of God to do this. And so he's saying it's just obvious that I'm working with God. It's obvious that I'm not doing this from satanic means because I wouldn't have the power to pull off what I'm pulling off if that was the case. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. We've talked a lot in the past about uh, us-them dynamics in church, right? And the idea that we want to be people that are welcoming to others. Uh, I find it interesting that Jesus does occasionally use us-then dynamics, and he does it here. He says, you need to start picking teams. Okay, we love gradation, right? Uh, We live in a time of um, moral ambiguity. Uh, You maybe remember a sermon, I don't know, six months ago. We talked a little bit about... Uh, We like to watch movies now about how bad guys became bad guys so that we can sympathize with them and understand that they're just misunderstood. And really, they're not that bad of a guy if you look at it from their perspective, right? This is just kind of the cultural gestalt that we live in. I enjoy it, right? I think it's it's helpful. And I think there are some times in our spiritual life where humanizing people we disagree with is really important because it helps us to love them more, right? But here, Jesus uses a bit of an opposite tactic. And he's like, this is not hard. There is team God and there is team Satan. Okay, and if I'm casting out demons, you know which team I'm on. This is not some duplicitous thing. When you see good things happening in the world, if your response is like, well, that's just a really tricky thing that Satan's doing to do good work in the world to fool us. God's, Jesus says, it's not that complicated, okay? Satan is not out there with these huge master plans to make somebody the Pope and then the last second go, ha-ha, I'm a bad guy, right? He's like, this is a matter of whose team are we on? Are we on Satan's team or are we on God's team? And you can see very clearly that you got to pick. 
Are you going to help me do God's work in the world? Or are you going to be against God's work in the world? Uh, very similarly, there's another point where there's people who are doing things in Jesus' name, but they're not people Jesus is associated with. And James and John, the sons of thunder, say, can we call down fire from heaven and burn them alive? And Jesus goes, no, that's not what we do. He goes, if they are not against us, they're for us. That is incredibly dualistic, binary thinking. And we, we chisel against that, but, oh, you're never truly for or against anything. And we all have dark places in our heart. And, we all, and it's like, yes, all of that stuff is true. But there are times where we go, let's just count whose team is who. Let's just count who's on what side. Are you with Jesus? And if someone raises their hand, you go, okay, they're with us. And that's enough to know that somebody is working alongside you for the things you care about. And I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. All right, so this is where we, uh, this is where we get real worked up, okay? Because uh, this is a passage commonly talked about as the unforgivable sin, Right? Um, if you're like me and ever have uh, struggled a little bit by worry about spiritual things, there's some people that have, um, I forget what it's called. There's like a psychological thing called like hyper-religiosity where people hear something like this, like there's an unforgivable sin, and then they obsess about it all day long. Oh God, what if I commit the unforgivable sin today? Then I'll be lost forever. And so they worry about it. Honestly, there have been times when I was a teenager, I was like, what does that look like? What does it sound like? What does it mean? And like, there were times where I would just become overcome with dread that I was going to do this, right? And so we get lost in this passage and like, we got to figure out what it means. And I got to make sure that I'm not forever cast off into to hell. And what is this going to be? And it really works us up. And I, I think we want to walk back a little bit and put it in context and understand a few things. I think the first thing that Jesus is trying to say here contextually is hold your tongue when you are criticizing other people doing God's work. Quite clearly here, Jesus is working by the Holy Spirit to heal someone and the Pharisees are calling the Holy Spirit's work the devil's work. And Jesus goes, that's super dangerous. You do not mess with that. Now, is unforgivable and super dangerous the same thing? Not exactly, but there is overstatement in Scripture, okay? Um, I think that here what Jesus is saying is this is a place you do not tread on. And this is dangerous for us because we regularly see and hear people on TV trying to do God's work. And we're like, well, they aren't really real Christians. And I think that we run the risk and the danger that the Pharisees are running right here of looking at the Spirit's work and calling it the devil's work. And the reason that that's so scary, and I think this is more than like, it's not, for me, it's not accounting. Jesus isn't like, whoop, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You got that one against your books. Case closed. We're finished. I think what Jesus is more getting at here is this. The Holy Spirit is the way that God convicts us. Scripture is very clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who cuts us to the heart is the one that causes us to repent, that causes us to come back to God. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls out and says, come home, 
Okay? It's the beacon home, uh, the beacon homing. That is not right. The homing beacon for, um, <laughs> trouble this morning. The homing beacon for God. It says, come home. If your homing beacon you chronically don't listen to and you chronically ignore, you eventually get so lost you can't get home. If we live a life of looking at the Spirit and going, nah, that's not God, then when it actually is God saying, hey, you need to slow down, what are we going to say? Nah, that's not God. If you deaden your heart to the point that you can no longer hear the Spirit move in your life, you are in a terribly dangerous spiritual place. And I don't think it's unforgivable in that like there's a set of cosmic rules that make it unforgivable. I think it's unforgivable in that you'll never even realize you've done it and how far you've gone because you've ignored the only voice that could tell you to come back. And that's just really dangerous. Does that make sense? And I think contextually now, when we understand that within this verse, Jesus is saying, you've got to be careful with the way you're dealing with stuff. Because you're seeing amazing, beautiful miracles, and you're calling them disgusting and evil. And if your pride and your sense of right and wrong is so jacked up that you can't see a good, beautiful thing in front of you, then you're going to get to a place where you're so spiritually dead, you're not going to come back from it. Because you can't even see God's goodness when it's right in front of your eyeballs. And I, for me, that helps me a lot more, right? I stop worrying about like, oh, is there secret words that if I say I'm lost forever? And it's more like, where is my heart as far as am I willing to listen and see God's work in the world? Or am I constantly judging it? All right, next bit. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Good people bring good things out of the good stored up in them, and evil people bring bad things out of the evil stored up in them. But I tell you that people will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Um, this is an image I found on Google Images. It's ridiculous. It's obviously photoshopped. And we know it's photoshopped because it's a bush that's growing lemons and apples, right? Why is that tree growing? Why, why, why do we know that's wrong? Because apples don't grow on bushes and lemons and apples don't grow on the same tree. And this is just, I mean, you could be in second grade and this is horticulturally ridiculous. And <laughs> yes, right. There's not great Photoshop either. And Jesus, I think, is trying to hit us with that much of an image. He's like, you cannot be a tree with bad stuff and create good fruit. He's saying to the Pharisees, I cannot bring healing and life and vitality and beauty and godliness and righteousness to people. And you say that I'm a bad tree. It is impossible to produce good fruit from a bad tree. And we constantly see fruit and we go... Did you super glue this on this tree? This tree can't be that good, right? And God says, Jesus says, just, just look at the fruit. Just look what people are doing. It's not that hard. You're making morality like a PhD thesis. It's not necessary. Do you see people doing the right stuff? Do you see people doing the wrong stuff? Do you see people being righteous? People not. What kind of words are coming out of their mouths? 
Uh, he then uses this image of overflow. Uh, oh, my slide saved me. Um, this, it's kind of like, have you ever seen someone who's been in denial about being sick? Right? Have you ever seen someone who you, you see they're all white and they're pasty. There's little beads of sweat on their forehead because they have a fever. Um, they come in and they're like, I, I'm, I'm fine. And you're like, you have 105 temperature. There's no way to be fine with 105. No, 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 really. I'm okay. Jesus, this is not how this works, okay? You're, you can tell if somebody's doing well or not. There's obvious outward signs. And he talks about this idea of overflow. That whatever you're filling in your heart, that your, your, your heart is a cup that overflows. Uh, this is a very pristine, beautiful image, right? This good, clean water that comes up to the point that it pours out. Um, I thought image-wise that an overflowing toilet would be another way to use this metaphor. I thought that'd be a little gross for you, right? But I think that's illustrative. Are you the kind of person that's overflowing this way or are we in the Roto-Rooter overflowing way, right? And we kind of, we want to say things like, well, it's just words, I didn't mean it, or, oh, it was an accident, or, oh, you know, I just heard that joke the other day, I thought it was funny, or something. And Jesus goes, no, the ways that you start to speak says something about what's going on in here. And to get back to our original point, when you see things in the world, and your first response is, yeah, sure, whatever, it's just a ditch, right? Like, if that is what's coming out of your heart, then it means your heart is full of lots of junk. If you cannot say a positive word about anything around you, then you're probably filling yourself with negativity. Again, we bring a lot of this to social media, but you guys, we live on social media a lot, right? To me, if I can read through your thread, like if I go and read your last 18 posts and I'm like, oh, I feel better about the world, God's working really well in your life. And if I read through your last 18 posts, it's like, there's got to be a question of what's been being filled up there, right? What are we eating? What are we ingesting? What is overflowing out of your mouth through your fingertips? And it's a hard thing to look at is what is the overflow of your life? Ultimately, I think um, people are going to see us one way or the other. They're going to see us as a kind, loving person that welcomes people and has that overflow of goodness, or they're going to see us as a harsh, critical, mean-spirited person that's just negative all the time, right? Um, C.S. Lewis talks about how this is just, that's the divergent path you get to pick in life, and your heart is going to overflow with the good or the bad, and we've got to decide what it is. Um, this week, as you go through your life and you see different things going on, um, try to be positive. When somebody has something good, rejoice with them, right? We have our new grandparents today, right? Spend some time smiling and laughing and getting excited with them because it just should be positive, right? It just should be good. If there's someone you don't like that gets a promotion, be nice to them about it, right? You know, like there's all these ways, whether it's good, exciting things from people we like or people we don't like, or if it's sad things that happen to people we like or not like and we mourn with them, can we engage in the world that says, I'm so full of the goodness and grace and love and joy of Christ that I can't help but live a joyous, gracious life? 
Or will we sit like the Pharisees and see a man with a lifelong illness healed and go, must have been the devil. You're so broken if that's the only way you can think about something. And I get there sometimes, okay? Not just you, me too. But Jesus says, no, you will, your, your words will prove you out. How you are investing your life and whether you're doing the, the, the nasty, evil stuff in your heart or the good stuff in your heart, that will overflow and people will tell and they'll be able to tell about what you speak out of your lips. All right. Uh, we do a Q&A at the end of all of our sermons. You guys have any questions about the sermons or anything we said today? It's a two-part question. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, she was, I mean, she was frustrated with me. Um, but, you know, someone has described my mom well as, my mom is where fun is. And so, if, there, if I wasn't having fun, she was too good to me, and she'd find something that I would enjoy to make sure I had a good time, too. So she was very sweet that way. How did I overcome it? Um, honestly, my wife. So um, uh, I like going to aquariums with Fran because Fran stops at every little window and finds something in it she likes and says, oh, that's cool because it's got this. And I was like, well, I like this girl and I'm attracted to her, so I have to care about what she cares about. And so I would pretend to care about things like that. And slowly, what I learned is that when you slow down and you appreciate stuff in life, life is just richer. Oh, you do not know the level to which you have all been blessed by her <laughs> via not dealing with me before her. <laughs>